Hi friends, welcome to the Friends of France podcast. In this safe space, we are favored in each episode with the presence of an expert guest from different fields and specialties as we learn about their life journeys, their successes, possible regrets, and realizations, their work, why they do what they do, and even their life outside of work. In here, we tear down common myths and misinformation with up-to-date, evidence-based science and data simplified for anyone to digest. We don't shy away from topics that can sometimes be polarizing or taboo. We normalize the humanization of healthcare and its workers, and we promote the importance of self-care and safeguarding your mental health. Please keep in mind that the conversations in this podcast are for educational and informational purposes only. They are not implied or intended to be a substitute for professional medical diagnosis, advice, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers regarding a medical condition. Are you ready? Let's go! Hi, 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 friends! We're two weeks into the new year, and I hope we've been starting on a good foot. I hope everyone's been okay. Back to work, back to school. It's Friday again, which means we have another episode of the Friends of France podcast. Yay! You know, I always say that I'm so excited for this episode, and genuinely, I love and am excited for every episode, but especially this episode, because it is truly near and dear to my heart. Because of all of the podcast episodes we've had so far, and also the upcoming episodes in this whole season, this is the closest to what I do in the daily at work. Just like last week's episode with Dr. Ali Hader, where we talked about how to avoid a broken heart, hmm, did anyone take notes? <laughs> Today's episode was also recorded last year, February, which is American Heart Month. But in last week's episode, if you remember, we mostly talked about the clinical presentations of heart diseases, what to look out for in our cholesterol blood tests, how to accurately take a blood pressure measurement, and even what is the suggested heart-healthy exercise and diet levels to avoid a heart attack. Today, we will still be talking about the heart, but outside of mainly the clinical. Now we're going to get a little bit more personal. We're going to talk about cardiac nursing. You know, the whole healthcare team is amazing. Everyone really works together for the patients, especially in the cardiac surgical floor that I used to work at in the hospital. But I must say, as the bedside nurse, there is truly no one who knows the patient more than us, the nurses. For the whole 12 or 13 hour shift, alongside the nursing assistants and the nurse techs on the floor, If there is anything that happens or changes to the patients, we truly are the first to know. We are there the most minutes and the most time with the patients. Giving medications, physical assessments, attending to any concerns or call bells, dealing with devices or other support systems, monitoring their heart rhythms through the telemonitor, cleaning and bathing the patients as basic nursing care, and especially when I used to flow in the cardiac ICU where everything is in glass windows, you're literally seeing the patient every second and every moment. I know that some people find it quite ostentatious when nurses say that they are with the patients the most. But honestly, it is true, and I think it's a very beautiful thing. We are able to foster deep and intimate relationships with our patients and their families where we can garner their trust and they can openly share to us all of their sentiments and their pain and their vulnerabilities without any compulsion or pretense. So I worked on the cardiothoracic surgery step down for two years and in that interval I have also floated to regular telemetry floors or even the medical ICU and the CVICU as well. 
I honestly loved it. Was it hard and stressful work? Yes, but to this day, I can still remember the many conversations and memories that I have made with my patients when they talk to me. I still remember my patient who had a bypass surgery. And during the day shift, his wife would visit all the time. And all the nurses would say, Wow, his wife is so sweet, always caring for him and supporting him. While I was working the night shift at around 2am, I was walking past by the patient's room, and he was still awake, sitting on the edge of his bed. I entered his room and I said, Sir, is everything okay? Why are you still awake? You should be sleeping so you can recover. And all of a sudden, he started tearing up and crying in front of me. I sat down in the chair in front of him, and I said, What's going on? And he said, My wife has been visiting every day. But behind closed doors, she would tell me how useless I am now that I have received open heart surgery. And that one night shift when I was assigned to a patient who was suicidal. He had someone observing him in the room along with the video monitoring, but he insisted that he didn't want anyone else in the room. He didn't want any nurses, he didn't want any medications, he didn't want to see any of the doctors or any of the medical team. In short, I was told that this is a sad case of a difficult patient. Prior to this shift, I recently just came back from a short vacation in California where I visited some friends in Orange County, which actually had a huge plaza with many Vietnamese restaurants. This was notable for me to mention only because I recognized that the patient's name was very common within the Vietnamese community. I went into his room to introduce myself, and I saw his glaring eyes in front of me almost immediately. I walked in, and he said, I said I did not want anybody in my room. And I said, I understand, sir. I just wanted to make sure that you had dinner. And he said, I had the worst macaroni and cheese ever. To which I replied, I am so sorry to hear that. I don't mean to make you jealous, but I wish you were able to taste the bun meat that I had yesterday. <laughs> His eyes immediately lit up and he was like, bun meat? Are you Vietnamese? I said, well, technically, I'm a small percentage of Vietnamese, but I just came back from California and had the best dinner ever. He immediately started to smile, out of nowhere, and he said, you know, I used to live in California with my Vietnamese family, but I moved here to New York 20 years ago to start cooking, and then I developed a heart disease. And since then, I didn't have enough money to go back home to my community, and it's just so hard to find banh mi here in New York City. How the rest of the story goes is that we continue to talk about banh mi for the next 10 minutes, and about his experiences in California, and here in New York, and being lonely, being apart from his family. I ended up giving him his 9pm medications and he was able to fall asleep that night soundly. You know, surgical floors and especially cardiac surgical floors can be really toxic and stringent. And our expert guests and I today talk a lot about that in this episode. But we also agree that these moments, these moments of vulnerability with the patients, being in tune with what they're experiencing in life, you know, these patients in the hospital and clinics, specifically in our topic of cardiology, whether it be telemetry, cardiac medical ICU, cardiac surgical ICU, they're just understandably afraid. The heart is such a vital organ, and to know and anticipate the news that you might need surgery on it, or that there is something wrong, it is truly a trembling experience, and I know from personal experience because I had cardiac ablation back in 2016. This is just a couple of my experiences as a bedside nurse in the cardiac unit. And now it's time for me to stop talking <laughs> so that you can now hear the nursing experiences of someone who's also working in cardiology, who I truly admire and idolize. We tackle all things bedside nursing. Also about the transition from bedside nursing to becoming a nurse practitioner in the CVICU. CVICU nurses themselves. Hmm, have you seen 
all of the memes. Like, why are they such the butt of Instagram's jokes? And also other nerdy ICU stuff such as ECMOs and cardiac tamponade. I am beyond excited to present to you Dr. Danielle Levesque, a dual board certified, doctorally prepared acute care nurse practitioner and clinical nurse specialist working as an NP in the CVICU with a decade of bedside nursing experience in cardiac intensive care units. Her doctoral research is focused on implementing palliative care for end-stage heart failure patients in the CVICU. She continues to fight the good fight for changes like this in the healthcare system through her blog called Nurse Abnormalities, which she began in 2015 to empower all generations of nurses. She also stands as one of the Healthcare Advisory Board members created by the Scrubline Figs to empower the healthcare community. Dr. Levesque has also been featured on the New York Magazine The Strategist, Glamour, The Daily, and also Board Vitals. Are you ready? Let's go! Hello! Hi! Danielle, thank you so much for being here. February is American Heart Month, and I've been working in cardiology, as you are too, so there was no other choice but to commemorate the month. And I was just thinking that it's been more than a month since we met in Katie's tour. Can you believe that? Yes! No, and I honestly can't believe that I didn't know you before. (laughs) I mean, you just like kind of like look at like a celebrity. Like everyone knew you there, I felt like. And I was like, who is this? No, no, Why no. Why have I not met him? No, the moment you walked in, I was like, oh my gosh. I can just remember the first day that I watched that Board Vitals video with oh. Mike. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know Danielle was here. Oh yeah, oh my God, and Mike, he's so funny. Oh jeez. I know, I but it was, it was such a great night. And I can't believe that like a month passed already. For some reason, it feels like it was longer because I feel like so many things happened in just one month. I know, right? There were so many things that happened in the world continually happening and also within the nursing sphere as well. But it is such an honor for you to be here with me today. Thank you so much for I've just been an admirer of yours for a long time now. and Well, I've been an admirer for a month and I was (laughs) totally secretly hoping you would ask me on because I liked you so much whenever I met you. And so when you asked me, I was like, oh, yay. The heart is such a complex organ, and you are obviously an expert in it. And two weeks ago, I was with Dr. Ali Hader. But I feel like also, despite all the similarities that we have in both fields of medicine and nursing, there is something about nursing and cardiology because... I mean, I was a bedside nurse in cardiology, and we are with the patients every single second of that whole shift. So I feel like there's things that we see and that we gather from our patients, right, that most people don't see at all. And it's so nice to have you on. But first things first, before we talk about all the cardiology, I want to lead up to this point first with your nursing career, because it is so inspiring. It is so motivational. First off, where did nurse abnormalities, that name, come from? Oh my gosh. So actually like not that great. Um, It's not that great. I wanted to start a blog. I had been thinking about it for a long time. Mm. I wanted a catchy name and I was having some health problems. And so I had to get an EKG one time that had said T-wave abnormality on my EKG. And then I was just thinking to myself like, oh, I I don't. So somehow I like put it together from there. So like the start was going to be like T-wave abnormality. And I was like, well, that's stupid so anyway and I wanted to talk about like quirks in nursing and mm-hmm. you know how nurses are and stuff and so anyway it somehow I just put it together from that after like word salading it you know on a piece of paper but yeah. it came from that 
There so. we go. And now everybody knows she has nurse abnormalities. That's I amazing. Know, right? <laughs> Nobody knows my name, which is really funny. Everybody just says nurse abnormalities, which is like such a mouthful too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I remember in Katie's event, right? She was like, nurse abnormalities is here. I was like, yeah. no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then like the abbreviation of it is NA, which is narcotics anonymous. No, yeah. So it just doesn't like things like don't match. But you know, you never think about that it. when you first get started. Yeah. I love it. But where did that first inspiration of nursing come from like was there a family member who was a nurse a friend or a personal experience not really you know honestly whenever i talk about it a lot of people can relate but it doesn't sound you know i can't say that i had a calling i honestly wanted to be a doctor initially yeah. because i have a bunch of doctors in my family oh, okay. uh, my mom was a nurse before she became a doctor which was kind mm. of cool and then she was a nurse practitioner too. So she was like one of the first nurse practitioners ever. She got uh, like a certificate and then ended up going to medical school. But yeah, so my story is like, I can't say that I ever wanted it, but I definitely needed it. And I definitely mm -hmm. love it now that I'm in it. But basically, I wanted to go to medical school. And then some things happened when I was a teenager that it just mm -hmm. didn't work out like mm -hmm. with my home and personal life and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And I was married. And then ended up getting a divorce and wanted to be in healthcare. And so mm -hmm. I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go to nursing school because that will take me a shorter amount of time yeah. than going to medical school so I can figure out if I like really like this yeah. area. So I ended up going to nursing school and I was going to use it as like a stepping stone into something different in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up like loving it. Yeah. So yeah, so I just dated it and what really drew me in was the closeness to the patients, as you mentioned, and being around them all the time and being with them as they were going through tough times and also mm -hmm. like sort of being a kind of a protector for patients too yeah. and their families when you're in the hospital. And so I love all of those components of it. And I was also just shocked at how baller nurses are. I had no idea because I came from a medical family and I yeah. saw nurses like somewhat, but I didn't see you know, you don't ever know what nurses do until you actually do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, even when you're like in the nurse practitioner position, like, thank yeah. God I was a bedside <laughs> nurse because I don't understand, you know, like I see like physician's assistants or physicians sometimes like don't understand mm -hmm. why it takes an hour to place mm -hmm. a fully on a patient mm -hmm. or two hours, you know, like mm -hmm. you don't understand mm -hmm. why things move so slowly yeah. or yeah. like what people are doing. So like, I'm so glad I was a nurse for so long. Yeah. before I became an NP. But yeah, I mean, it was like eye-opening and shocking to see what nurses do yeah. daily. So I, I loved it. So anyway, yeah. I just kept going. Yeah, I mean, my mom has been a nurse for 30 years as well. So, I mean, growing up, you know, I would hear the story she'd say over the dinner table. In my mind, I was like, you know, that's nothing, that's nothing. And then, <laughs> well, not nothing, but it's like, oh, okay, okay, I get it, I get it. And it's so typical. <laughs> and when I became a bedside nurse myself, I was like, Holy crap. I have no idea. Right? I have no idea. It's insane. It is like insane. I just honestly like, so like going from there, I was like, nurses are amazing. Like, yeah. why do they not get paid more? Why do they not get like better benefits? And I, and that was what forced me yeah. to like start the blog. Cause I was yeah. like, well, if there's one thing I can do, it's talk. So yeah. I'll just start talking about like how amazing nurses are and how much they deserve that they're not mm. getting. So yeah. that's how it all started. Yeah, and that's why it's such an honor to speak to you because you have been a voice for 
nurses all across oh. the nation. And it's great to know that there's someone, you know, out there with a platform who's speaking on behalf of everybody who are too tired to talk because they've just been coming in a shift. Or, yeah. And I think the pandemic just weared everybody down too as well. It did. Yeah. I haven't, I honestly like haven't spoken as much as I used to because yeah. like you said, it's just exhausting. And then yeah. once I had a baby and stuff, but yeah. you know, it's been nice because I've been doing it for a long time. So some of the people who have been more vocal through the pandemic yeah. and stuff, I knew yeah previously and it's cool to me like they tell me they started their platform because of mine so that to me is more satisfying than even having my own platform so like you know for those that have energy like keep going (laughs) thank you yes (laughs) yes as you said you've been a bedside nurse for years right for many years before you went on for your NP profession and your doctorate degree right like you said, nursing is kind of shorter compared to like the medical pathway, mm-hmm. but it's still actually a long and arduous road, especially while you were working as a bedside nurse. And NP school is very rigorous. And then you started working as NP. Do you have any regrets with the time and effort and money that you have placed into what you are now? I get asked this question a lot, and I can't wholeheartedly say no, I have I have zero regrets. I do have some regrets depending on the day. And I think anybody who does that works in healthcare, you know, like some days I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I became a nurse. It's changed my life (laughs) for the better, you know, and it pretty much has like changed Mm -hmm. my life for the better. And I love doing something new every day. I love the patients for the most part. You know, I'd say that with my job, I'm like a 75, 20 percent split. I seventy five percent like it. I twenty five percent don't like it. And I do consider that like a decent ratio, you know, compared to other people that I talk to. Oh yeah. So yeah, I mean, I have some regrets. I could have done some things differently. I had I known or been more savvy, I could have taken out fewer student loans to get my degree and to go through, you know, everything that I went through. But I just didn't know at the time. Yeah. So, you know, overall, yeah, I would change a few things as the way I went about getting mm-hmm. to where I am now. Mm-hmm. But do I regret being where I am now? No. And I, I honestly, like I say this all the time, I love being a bedside nurse. You know, had I not wanted to stay in the ICU because it was becoming not really sustainable mm-hmm. working full time mm-hmm. and doing what I was doing. Had I not wanted to stay in the ICU, I probably would have gone back to school later and not even Mm -hmm. gone back to school. Mm -hmm. Like if I had been making more money and worked in a more sustainable area and was getting lunch breaks and stuff like that, maybe worked as a nurse in California or something, you know, because like talking- They have break nurses. (laughs) Yeah, like the nurses get paid really well. And like I have a friend in administration and stuff that says like they don't have as many turnover issues there. So, you know, that was a lot of my- decision to go back to school I also wanted more autonomy and I wanted to Mm -hmm. learn more and such Mm -hmm. but yeah overall I don't have that many regrets but I'd be lying to say that I didn't have some yeah (laughs) I always say if there's a nurse when I talk to nursing students or pre-nursing students I tell them if there's a nurse who tells you that there's not one time that they wanted to leave a shift they're lying (laughs) yeah I mean they're totally lying it's so hard Right? Like no matter what department you work in, if you're a nurse and you're working Mm -hmm. with people, like it's hard. Working with people is tough work, (laughs) you know, and caring for others, like it's tough work. And most of the time when you're a nurse, like 
you're caring for people. You're just a, you're a caring person. You're like bearing the burden for people in your life, people mm-hmm. at work, like, mm-hmm. you know, your kids, your pets, your mm-hmm. like friends. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so you're just that type of person in yeah. general. So it's, it just consumes it's you. Yeah. As someone with acne and blemish prone skin, facial scarring and hyperpigmentation have always been my issues since high school. Acne has robbed me of my self-confidence throughout my schooling years, and having its visible reminders on my face to this day continues to do so. But I have found silver linings of hope having used RescueMD's DNA Repair Complex Serum. Plastic surgeon developed, RescueMD seeks to harness the powers of science and two decades of patient experience in providing a multi-benefit skin renewal serum that provides real results and improves the appearance of visible skin damage. Beyond my personal skin concerns, the serum also seeks to address a breadth of damage from varying external stressors, including hypertrophic and surgery scars, burns and chemical burns, cuts, scrapes, and bug bites. All of these are targeted by supporting the skin's natural healing process through its infusion with RescueMD's patented LabCol, a proprietary anti-inflammatory skincare technology that targets skin damage at the DNA level. The serum also contains a hand-selected blend of other ingredients such as peptides to help strengthen the skin, botanicals like rosehip to soothe, and moisturizing agents such as dimethicone and allantoin that helps to speed up skin recovery. The DNA Repair Complex Serum has been my daily friend, and every day, I feel like I can take back what my scars have stolen from me. Definitely, each skin is different and results are not guaranteed, but I hope that you can find your silver lining too. In partnership with RescueMD, you can get 15% off your order on RescueMD.com with the code FOF15. The serum is also now available on Bloomingdale's.com. Discover what healthy skin healing means with RescueMD. Growing up with my mom, who has been a nurse for the past 30 years, I would always take an adventure in her bookshelf filled with nursing and medical textbooks, encyclopedias, and various human anatomy posters. I still remember perusing through an encyclopedia as a six-year-old, trying to look for pictures of eyes and muscles, attempting to pronounce their lengthy names since I could not really understand explanations about the different body parts. Despite the myriad of children's books with topics ranging from magical universities to talking animals and the different types of rocks, there weren't really any books in the workings of the human body when I was a child. For children, Written by physicians, Dr. Betty and Dr. Brandon, the Medical School for Kids book series now provides a charming, easy-to-understand introduction to the wonders of the medical field. These books feature beautiful illustrations and simple explanations, teaching children and adults alike about the anatomy, physiology, and diseases of the body. From distinguishing a normal mole from melanoma, to discovering the importance of eating healthy food for heart health, to knowing the vital signs that are monitored in the operating room, people of all ages can truly learn something new through these books, as they are designed to teach real medical concepts to readers of all ages in a ways that anyone can understand. Take an educational adventure into the intricacies of every organ system of the human body. Paperback copies of the books are available for purchase on Amazon.com and eligible for two-day prime delivery. Kindle versions of the books are also available on Amazon and free with Kindle Unlimited. You can also visit the website md4kids.org for more information. Get ready for an adventure on the medical school bus! So you did your acute care nurse practitioner program, right? 
right? I did, yeah. And so the NP role, there's a lot of NPs now across the nation, but there's still many countries where the profession is not instituted at all. And I think there is a portion of the United States as well who are still not aware or educated about the NP role. Right. How would you define your role as a nurse practitioner and what do you think is the best part about it? You're right. Like, (laughs) people totally don't understand what NPs do. And honestly... It was difficult for me to understand early on and as I was going through the degree because, you know, the nursing organizations are pretty political. And like, Mm -hmm. as you're going through school, and I went to a really big school for my nurse practitioner degree, Mm -hmm. and they are constantly talking about being autonomous and gaining more autonomy and having full practice authority. And you sort of get locked in on that. And at the same time, Mm -hmm. you feel odd because like, as you're going to school, you're you know, you know, like for an an acute care nurse practitioner, we're trained like very generally, Mm -hmm. you know, nurse practitioners are trained by age group Mm -hmm. more than anything, Mm -hmm. you know, in certain Mm -hmm. patient populations, you're not trained by like what you're doing for a living. So Mm -hmm. you have these conflicting messages. And so basically you like go through school and I'm kind of veering off of the original question, but you go through school and when you get out, you have like so much learning still to do. So it's Mm -hmm. hard to get through school. You get through school, you do your doctoral project too, if you do that or if you want to, and then you get out and then you still have like a ton of learning to do. So Mm -hmm. My first three years of being a nurse practitioner was really learning how to do my job. And I had Mm -hmm. worked in cardiac surgery ICU for a long time Mm -hmm. before. So I worked like a total of seven years as a bedside nurse. So I've done that before. So I had a general idea of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But once you become a provider, it's even like you have to have a more deeper understanding of things. And you have a lot of responsibility when you're signing Mm -hmm. your name to an order. You know, so I could have cared less about this whole practice authority. Mm -hmm. You know, it didn't really affect me for what I was doing for my job. And for like the great majority of NPs, like it doesn't really affect Mm -hmm. us because you come out of school, you need help and training from the people Mm -hmm. around you, the experienced Mm -hmm. NPs, Mm -hmm. the physicians, you Mm -hmm. know, the the nurses, like Mm -hmm. everyone. Mm -hmm. And then after you do that for a few years, you become pretty comfortable. I don't really, you know, most days, I don't really rely on Mm -hmm. anyone else at my job. Yeah, Yeah, I have questions like anyone else would, but like overall, you know, I can go into the ICU and see Mm -hmm. patients and know what to do and, you know, do a good job. So I would say basically you come out of school, you still have learning to do, and once you become more comfortable, you can then take yourself back to what it was becoming a nurse in the first mm-hmm. place. You know, you can you can add back in those like caring mm-hmm. components, those like deep conversations, those truly helping the patient holistically, mm-hmm. like you could as a nurse. But it takes a couple years because you have yeah. to get comfortable. You have yeah. to learn the guidelines. You have yeah. to learn how to treat the patients, and it's hard to do all of it whenever you're learning that component. So I would say the best part of my job now is that now that I'm so much more comfortable in it Mm -hmm. than I was before, now I can like bring back in the nursing component. You know, I don't have to spend time agonizing about every order that I write, like it's much more automatic. And Mm -hmm. I can spend time talking to the patients and the families and guiding them through Mm -hmm. their course of care in the hospital. And I absolutely love that. Yeah. And like you said, I was an expert before. I'm not really an expert. Like I don't, I'm not an expert at all. I mean, there are people that are so much smarter than me. There are people who are, you know, true experts in the field. I'm not, 
but I am really good at managing patients in the mm. ICU. I know my limits. So yeah. like I know when to ask for help. I never yeah. take on too much if I don't, yeah. if I know I shouldn't. But I think what differentiates the nurse practitioner is that we can sit and like have a normal conversation mm. with patients and families, yeah. you know, we can explain things clinically in a way that patients and families can understand. Yeah. And they like that. And so yeah. I love that component of yeah. like really sitting down and getting to know someone. So. And that roots from those years of bedside nursing and all of yeah. those previous experiences, right? Because I know you were talking about, I think there was one post you were talking about, oh, I have my thoughts about Ploma Mills and stuff like this and stuff like that, where the schools are just churning out NPs yeah. or other providers. So I feel like there's a lot of nuanced conversations within nursing in the healthcare field. I mean, just recently you were talking about how they were trying to cap the nurse his pay and all these problems with administration and i actually wanted to read a quote that you have from your website actually where you said oh gosh you are <laughs> not a <laughs> you said oh. you are not a saint you are not a nun you are not a sex symbol you do not work for free this may not have been your calling but there is a reason you're a nurse conscious or unconscious so nursing has a lot of issues. And one of my emergency medicine physician friends told me that the pandemic didn't start the problems, it just unearthed them and just mm -hmm. shed them to the light. And I think because of all of those things that's being unearthed, a lot of nursing students or even students who've been wanting to go into healthcare are wondering if it's even worth it to go into the field. What would be your advice on that, having been in this field for a while? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's difficult to give advice. Like, I are nursing students going to come into a perfect profession? Absolutely not. <laughs> like, they're not. It's not going to be perfect. Some things are going to be really messed up and difficult. And I don't want to paint a picture like mm -hmm. it is, you know? And I used to have, you know, my life has changed a lot since I started my blog. And I have had some really great thoughts about being a nurse mm -hmm. and some, mm -hmm. you know, it did change my life. And I do feel if I left, now, I don't think I, I still don't feel like I could leave being a nurse. Like it's so much of my identity and I, and I love it so much. With that being said, I do think that it takes a special person to be yeah. a nurse and to mm -hmm. work in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just not for a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> However, you don't have to work at the bedside being a nurse. Mm -hmm. So I've had plenty of friends over the years that have worked at the bedside right out of school mm -hmm. and any department, you know, med surge, OB, mm -hmm. IC, mm -hmm. whatever. And they were just like, this is not for me. And, with, and there are plenty of other opportunities. So if you're okay with going into nursing and testing out the waters, you know, and maybe not liking it and moving around a little bit, mm -hmm. there are opportunities everywhere. Yeah. You know, like you've switched, told me you switched your department yeah. too, yeah. you know? So there are ways to like be happy mm -hmm. in nursing and not necessarily work in mm -hmm. the ICU or you know, wherever you want, you know, you can move wherever you want. The glorified so I, hospital sphere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you can be a consultant, you can do informatics, you can like get out of that area of practice anytime. So I think if you want uh, at least a job where you will have a steady paycheck and you will always have a job and that part is important to you and you will be doing something good for society, I think being a nurse is a great way to go, yeah. you know, but it's not perfect. Yeah, yeah. So I agree you have with to that. know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. And thank you for answering all of those questions about your nursing journey, because I wanted to bring to our topic, our focal topic of American Heart Month, of 
how different it is to be working in cardiology as a nurse, right? Like we said, we I feel like we bring a different type of contribution to our patients. As bedside nurses, we have time to sit down with our patients and talk to them, or if they're not vented or yeah. around or any of those things. But and even as an NP, you harness all of those nursing skills again and all of those you know that concept of care that focal care into your practice but in light of american hartman i wanted to know where did your interest of the heart first come from oh so my interest of the heart so when i was in nursing school worked as a tech in the icu too through Mm -hmm. nursing school and then i ended up doing my final clinical in cardiac medical icu which medical and surgical is different Mm -hmm. But so I started cardiac medical and, you know, you don't know why you are drawn to certain things, you know, like, so I was just like, oh, this is cool. And, you know, the heart's kind of all about plumbing, you know, so I was like, that's, you know, I like understanding the formalities of the heart. I was interested in the anatomy and physiology and Mm -hmm. the way all the drugs affected it, you know, and what we were doing affected it and how parts of it were quote unquote fixable and parts of it were not fixable. And so, you know, I liked the scientific part of the heart, but I Mm -hmm. think there was definitely a part of me that was drawn uh, to it theoretically. And Mm -hmm. even nursing, I definitely didn't realize in the beginning, but I do realize now I was trying to heal parts of myself through nursing, Mm -hmm. through like healing others, you know, Mm -hmm. and of course, like this is super cheesy, but like uh, a lot of people are trying to fix broken hearts and fixing their own. And so I think that there was like a theoretical component to it as well that just kept my interest over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time in nursing you know, going through school that I actually could keep my interest in something. Mm. And I did not enjoy anything else in nursing school until I hit ICU clinicals until I went into that area of mm. practice. So and I worked as a tech in the surgical ICU and I didn't yeah. enjoy that nearly as much as the <laughs> cardiac ICU. So yeah. yeah, so I think I didn't really know why at the time. Mm-hmm. But now looking back, I think that's why. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have friends who work in like neuro ICU, and I thought I just couldn't do it. I anything <laughs> no. with the bones or the brain or the it's spine, insane. you you can pay me double my no. salary. I will still not touch a spinal cord. <laughs> totally get, the same. But give me an open heart, and I'll be there. <laughs> there. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. It's just. I was just drawn to it. And it's just, I enjoy it so much. The only things I don't enjoy are like the hours of the shifts and like that. But other than that, I love the subject matter. Yeah. Yeah. Cardiac is so cool, right? (laughs) Yeah. I was just going to say like cardiac surgery, you know, it's just sort of like trickery and sorcery. Like, yeah. Okay. So there are protocols for open heart patients, like recovering them. But when you go somewhere that the patients don't really fit a protocol, which is Mm -hmm. quite often, no matter where you work, some of it's like really art to manage Mm -hmm. them Mm -hmm. coming Mm -hmm. out. And so I love that about cardiac surgery. You get like a little freedom to do some things you know (laughs) some crazy things i will never forget from my fundamentals of nursing class textbook where it says nursing is a science and an art and i was like art how can it be an art and then when i started working as a nurse with these cardiac post-cardiac surgery patients i was like oh wow you got to be creative and how you do it you You really have to yeah and you work in the cv i see you right I do, like, yeah. What do you think is the bread and butter of a cardiac surgery ICU? Let's say you walk in and your ship's starting. 
you know, the top three things that you would see for that shift? Yeah, oh, you just <laughs> never know. So like, that's number one. You just never yeah. know, <laughs> you know? So you can either be a person that walks around with like intense boiling anxiety yeah. all the time that something's going to happen, which was me for like, I don't know, a solid five years. Then once you get comfortable, like that kind of slows yeah. down and you just like are ready. So the top things that you'll see is there's always, you know, that. You never know what's going to happen. The mm-hmm. next thing is usually one patient at all times that is sick, really, really sick on the unit. You know, usually one, sometimes more, but usually there's one quote unquote causing problems, you know, that you have mm-hmm. to give some mm-hmm. extra, extra mm-hmm. attention mm-hmm. to. And yeah, I mean, just general excitement, you know, yeah. I, and if you're not up for that, it probably isn't the place for you. There's also some mm-hmm. dysfunction, which needs yeah. to be spoken about. Like cardiac surgery, I see is extremely dysfunctional. And I was recently looking up some studies on it. And there's not a lot of like really defined, well, there is some defined, I guess, in surgical ICU, because mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out like where all of this dysfunction come from, yeah. comes from yeah. and racism, which we've been talking about, yeah. you know, lately just some of the other influencers talking about racism in the cardiac mm-hmm. surgery ICU or mm-hmm. not even just ICUs or specialties yeah. in general and healthcare in general. So I've been trying to like look more into it and read more into it. And the surgical environment can just be really toxic and brutal if you're not like ready to deal with it. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to talk more about that coming up as I'm yeah. learning more. So that's yeah. what I'm, I'm digging through. So you have to be ready for that too. I'm, it's definitely not all butterflies and roses. Yeah. People can be extremely dysfunctional and messed yeah. up. Yeah. So you Yeah. I mean, I remember when I was starting as a new grad, I'm like almost every shift or two nights before even I start the shift, I'm like, I'm already anxious about my shift. Like I have no oh, idea what's same. coming on for me. I have no idea what patient I'm going to see, what, what diagnosis the patient had, yes. what complication from the cabbage that they had or T-bar or whatnot. I was like, oh It my takes forever God. to learn too, it, you know? Like, it does. And, and people can be so mean, you know, oh. if you don't know <laughs> things right off the bat, it, it takes a long time to be able to just brush that off too. Like yeah. take the feedback, learn from it if you must, yeah. and then be able to distinguish who's just yeah. being an asshole, yeah. you know, versus mm-hmm. like, yeah. uh, you know, the alternative. So yeah, I mean, so it's an intense environment. Yeah, that's for sure. It is. I mean, I feel like anything surgical is so, 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 so strict and so stringent. I mean, it is. And the NPs and PAs and the residents in our floor always running on their feet because this, 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 this. And the family members, too, of the patients, like, what's going on? This, this is uh, a lot that goes on within the surgical sphere, especially in cardiology. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, just like, you know, I am, I am really uptight and I'm by no means like perfect. Like I've definitely snapped several times like on my unit just, I think just because the environment is so tense and then you have like, you know, the surgeon component and Mm -hmm. in the surgical ICU, any surgical ICU, it of course differs from the medical Mm -hmm. ICU because the surgeon really makes the last call on everything, Mm -hmm. you know, like what the surgeon wants, they get. They take the responsibility for cutting the person open. So they get the final word. And pretty much no matter what, you know, and it's been that way everywhere I've worked before. And whether Mm. you agree with it, or you disagree with it, you kind of just like have Mm. to do it or find Mm. a way to work Mm. through it. 
and navigate various personalities. But with that being said, you know, it's so cool and some amazing things happen. And yeah, yeah. And I think I get, especially in cardiology, right, why everyone is so stringent because it's such a sensitive organ. Oh my gosh, it's it's such a daunting organ. Anything can go wrong within like the next few minutes. Your most healthy patient after a surgery probably will get tamponade. You're right. Literally, it matters. And I'm pretty certain like the younger nurses want to like kill me or think that I'm the biggest bitch on the planet. But I like try and instill like, it matters. Like the really little things matter, you know, because patients can like circle Mm -hmm. the drain so fast, you know, things can change. That missed reading of you forgetting to take that blood pressure. Oh my God. It's coming back to bite you, right? It will bite you because before you know it, the blood pressure is either through the roof or (laughs) you're going to have to build a little bit of electricity. So it, it's such a daunting field. And I see you. Any cardiac patient, it means only one thing. There is something wrong going on with the heart. Yeah. And I think cardiology is one of, and heart disease is one of the things that we have seen in textbooks and in practice that it has some of the most modifiable and preventable risk factors, right? Yeah. I mean, most cabbages that we've seen, it's probably from long, 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 long years of narrowed and blocked arteries or whatnot, or a heart attack, or even strokes. All of these things can be led up to certain modifiable and preventable risks. As a provider in the field, as someone who is a diagnosing, prescribing, and treating body, what do you think are your recommendations for the general population to undertake, I don't know, diet or lifestyle choices that would hopefully prevent them from being one of the patients in the CVICU? Yeah, so I'm probably not the best person to ask this question to. I'll I'll like completely be honest about that. So if if I were working in a more primary care environment, I think I would definitely make more recommendations on that. And the main one I would make would be to stop smoking because I'm not going to pretend like any lifestyle change is easy. I struggle with it. Most people struggle with it. You know, I am. I feel like I haven't exercised consistently in five years just because something changed with me that I can't do it anymore, but I still try, you know? So in my current environment, it's really too acute to address like lifestyle changes with patients. But the one thing I will always try and mention if it is the right time with the patient and family is to like stop smoking just because there are so many complications associated with smoking only and Mm -hmm. particularly in the hospital. You know, if you're coming in for cardiac surgery, like you can pretty much expect an extended stay if you're a smoker for lung issues for anything. So that is like the main thing that I would say, but I don't want to pretend that that is easy for anyone because Mm -hmm. it is so hard. And I will say, and it's so cultural, you know, I will say like the majority of people that have heart surgery do have modifiable risk factors. You know, it's not like congenital surgery that we're doing all the time. That's pretty rare, honestly. So that's sad. And it's yeah. like part of our culture. And I wish yeah. that it could be changed. I do think these vegans are onto something. <laughs> I have not <laughs> been able to jump that boat yet. But I think they're onto something. God bless them. 
for I'm so sorry. I just had a burger the other day. So. I, know. I, know. I, I think they're definitely on to something. I think they're no definitely healthier yeah. than the rest of us, but I can't do it. So, you know, I mean, like, yeah, me and Dr. Heater were talking last oh, week. Oh, yeah. And, and I know he's mostly plant-based, but we were talking about how, you know, this diet and lifestyle talks, though important, there's a whole conversation and a whole underpinning of, you know, the socioeconomic factors that come into so play. So much. I told him, so why much. Why is a burger much cheaper than a healthy salad? What if... if mm-hmm. <laughs> There's many people who cannot afford the healthier options and No. Yeah, right? And your body's so already I mean, the chemistry of your body is not like you don't enjoy eating yeah. that eating a salad, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's there's so much to it. Like the socioeconomic factors are huge. Like I was just saying the other day, I a few weeks ago went down to my normal place at work mm-hmm. to get a salad. Mm-hmm. And it was $19. And I was like, the inflation has literally hit everything except for our paycheck. Yeah. You know? So I'm going down and <sighs> my salary. And I was like, wasn't this $13 like a month ago? And now it's $19 and they won't give me the free hummus on the side that they used to give me, you know? So you like, can get, you can get or four four fours from Wendy's with yes. that price. Yes, so with a frosty. When, yeah, so know? when people have to choose between that, right? That's why it's such a hard and nuanced conversation. And yeah. even despite this modifiable and preventable risk factors, it's just so hard, especially in the economy that we're in. It's mm-hmm. it's it's just so hard. But I think also one thing that happens also in cardiac surgery is we hear of patients, right, who's, oh, I am an athlete, and all of a sudden I get a heart attack, and yeah. their diet is perfect. All throughout high school and bouts of college, I suffered from severe acne. I cried almost every day looking at the mirror. I wore hoodies during the summer to hide my cheeks. When my mom asked me what I wanted for my birthday, all I wished for was a visit to the dermatologist. I tried so many products and saw so many estheticians, physicians, and other advanced providers. But I know that my mere access to these products and providers is a privilege. Many who suffer from acne and other skin conditions live in many underserved populations where access to dermatology specialists can be difficult due to limited resources. To help bridge this divide, Vanna Padilla, a dermatology nurse practitioner, recently launched Your Skincare Experts Derm Course, which can allow other specialties to provide comprehensive care to patients through dermatology in places where access may be limited. The course can also be used to help better train extended providers within the field of dermatology to feel confident and empowered in their knowledge. From fortifying skin anatomy to identifying skin types and concerns, breaking down acne, building skincare routines, and going over active ingredients, the course seeks to further knowledge on skincare, anti-aging, acne, and overall holistic skin health. Friends of France is partnering with Your Skincare Expert so that you can get 10% of the course with the code FRANZ, that's F-R-A-N-Z, or visit yourskincareexpert.com slash FRANZ. My skin and my life were changed by the right products and the right people. Through this course, I hope that this would also be made possible for others. Anyone who knows me knows that I love boba. After a heavy dinner? No problem. I have a second stomach for boba, and sometimes even a third. But each cup of bubble tea is definitely a guilty pleasure, given that the average cafe-made milk tea has over 100 calories per serving, over 20 grams of high glycemic sugar, and is packed with artificial flavors. I am so glad that the guilty days are over with Twirl, the world's first canned, plant-based milk tea. 
with only 45 to 50 calories per serving and containing 6 to 7 grams of sugar. And, low glycemic sweeteners at that, goodbye to sugar crash, Twirl is made with pea milk, the most sustainable plant-based milk on the market, regenerating the soil where it comes from. This is thanks to the fact that fair trade and organic are the names of the game as the teas are sourced from biodiverse family farms in China, Japan, and Taiwan that practice sustainable farming techniques. No artificial flavors are ever used. Choose from three antioxidant flavors of the chocolatey Taiwan-style black milk tea, floral jasmine, and nutty hojicha. Enjoy all of these flavors, each being nitro-infused that you can feel and hear their fresh, silky, and creamy texture with each pop of the can. Let's enjoy tasty, creamy, shelf-stable, and healthy milk tea together for 10% off using the code FRANZ10. That's F-R-A-N-Z-1-0. Now available on twirlmilktea.com or Amazon. Twirl around in its goodness. There are those things that you really don't expect. And I think when it comes to things that we don't expect, I think the biggest thing is COVID-19, right? Oh my gosh, this I know. whole pandemic that. that I can't believe is still going on. How do you think, I mean, you've been practicing for a while now, even pre-pandemic. How do you think the pandemic has changed your practice, both as uh. a nurse practitioner and how did it change your patient population? I'm very curious because, you know, we hear of people coming in with STEMIs months after they have their COVID-19 infection. What have you seen at the bedside in the CVIC when it comes to the pandemic? Right. So I work at a really big hospital mm. with a lot of resources. So mm. the main changes that I've seen, we kept the majority of COVID patients. We were able to open additional ICUs mm. to function as a MICU. Mm. But the patients that cardiac surgery ICU got were the ones that needed mechanical support for mm. myocarditis, for their mm -hmm. lungs. So I had ECMO and have ECMO patients that have lung failure from mm. COVID. And we have mm -hmm. had myocarditis patients that have needed VA ECMO to support their heart or both heart and lung with COVID. And then additionally, any patient who needed cardiac surgery and happened to test positive for COVID prior or needed emergent cardiac surgery, that's the patient population that I have. So yeah. how that has changed, COVID has just been exhausting, like in general. People's personalities are different. Everybody mm -hmm. is on edge you know, definitely much more angry. And, you know, mm -hmm. as we discussed, we're high strung uptight personalities mm -hmm. anyway, in the mm -hmm. CBICU. <laughs> so like, if you throw on a pandemic, you know, it's just not fun to be around it, Like everybody is just like kind of on edge. Yeah. So there was that component. The patient population is really tough. Because in mm -hmm. the beginning, you know, a lot of people were dying despite ECMO treatment. Because we just didn't know a lot about COVID. And you've had COVID, what, really three times or something. So like, you know, <laughs> you know, in the beginning, yeah. COVID was really attacking people. Yeah. And it has evolved into something different than it was initially with the first strain. Mm -hmm. So we were just getting people that would just die. Like we'd put them yeah. on ECMO. They wouldn't last. They would get a brain bleed. They would die. And they were anywhere from... 20, age 20 to, you know, older. And it was super, super sad. Mm -hmm. So I would say they would die faster. It was very sad. And then as the strains changed and the vaccine became available, mm -hmm. the only vaccinated people we had ever had on ECMO were transplant patients that mm -hmm. were really okay. immunosuppressed. Yeah. 
But as the strains changed, we were getting more postpartum patients Mm -hmm. on ECMO. We were getting just younger men in general Mm -hmm. who were not vaccinated and in their 40s and 50s with children. And it, it was, it's just sad. Like it's just sad. They can live on ECMO for months before it gets taken out, if it gets taken out. So you get to know their families really well. Yeah. Honestly, it's just been devastating to watch them. And I know it's been particularly devastating for the bedside nurses because when you're a bedside nurse, you don't really get to leave. You know, you're there all the time. I get to step away from the room if I want to. And I fully admit that. And it's a lot easier on my heart than it is like the bedside nurses. So there's been that component with those patients, which has just been all around sad. And then also losing a lot of our experienced bedside nurses has been a huge hit, like maybe even the biggest hit through the whole thing. So that's changed the entire dynamic of the way things operate. Also, it's changed my job because it makes to not have experienced bedside nurses, it makes my job a lot harder. So I, whereas like the physicians that I work with don't typically take the responsibility of like following up with nurses just because it's not natural for them to see what's going on. You know, the nurse practitioners definitely are doing a ton of follow up, a Mm -hmm. ton of teaching of how to be a bedside nurse, you know, and super tiring <laughs> so i can imagine i can imagine yeah, yeah with the yeah. patient population i remember in the beginning of well at least when we had the spike here in new york city i mean i think it was expected we were having 70 year old patients 80 year old patients and then as months went by it's like oh my gosh we're seeing 40 year olds 30 year olds yeah. like my friend the cc they're like oh my gosh we have a 35 year old on ecmo i was like an ecmo 35 year old yeah. No prior medical history, all because of this freaking virus. And it's just so sad of how much pain and how much loss it has imbued on not only the patients and on their family members, but really the healthcare workers. And I think also the pandemic has shown how much of teamwork is so important (laughs) going through all of this. Like I always say, thank you to the environmental staff. (laughs) Seriously. When we don't want to go into the room to do certain things, they will go in, right? And like, yeah. I remember after codes and it's like bloody everywhere. They're the ones just going in and, uh, you know, exposed to all of this. So, I mean, I think the pandemic has really had so much darkness and continue to do so. But I think there are small lights and they are like getting to meet people on the internet. Like, how has the social media world, especially for a healthcare community, changed because of the pandemic, right? I feel like everyone oh knows gosh. each other because because Seriously. of Instagram now. It's like, oh yeah. Seriously, I mean, there's a lot going on, on Instagram. I will say, yeah. like, there, there are, there are, like, in every situation, and you have to, you basically have to find them, or else it is like the most miserable environment wow. to be working in. But you're right; like, there are definitely positives to what we've been through, and the teamwork aspect is one of them. Yeah. I mean, you can be having like the most horrible day and exhausted and whatever, and like people will still help you. You know, if you ask, like you can still find help on like a unit or whatever. Like you get a bond, you have a bond from, it's like a trauma bond, of course, but like it's a bond. bond. No. (laughs) It's trauma bonding. Yes. And I mean, you, like, I have to say, like, you're totally right for environmental services, for people who, the people who have truly been the foundation of 
the hospital system and healthcare system mm-hmm. all along are the yeah. ones that should be highlighted during this pandemic. And I'm not going to pretend I do. I am a frontline worker, but Mm -hmm. I don't talk about being a frontline worker that often because it hasn't been okay for me, but in comparison to what others have gone through, respiratory therapists, assistants, the techs. Oh my gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Like those are the people who have built the foundation of healthcare Mm -hmm. and it cannot Mm -hmm. exist without them, you know? So those are the ones, in my opinion, that should get the yeah. glory from yeah. that, yeah. you know, Definitely. not me. And just to close this off, healthcare in general is stressful even pre-pandemic. But mm-hmm. again, the pandemic has unearthed so many issues within the healthcare sphere, so many of the politics, so many of the executive problems, mm-hmm. and a lot of the emotional tolls, actually, yeah. that has been shown. And I think it's because of the pandemic, we've seen higher rates of physician and nursing suicide. How do you decompress out of this very, very stressful and arduous field? I'm actually like working on that all over again. I feel like my ability to decompress and my coping mechanisms evolve basically with with what's going on. And ever since I had a child, everything has been completely (sighs) different. And I didn't you know, I wish I would have realized some of this stuff a long time ago, because, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of nurses are female, a lot of us have children. And just in general, like, I wish I would have understood the impact of Mm -hmm. being a mother and having kids. So I could have helped my coworkers along the way and my Mm -hmm. friends who had kids Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. been more understanding. But I just I didn't understand children at all. And I didn't understand the family unit. And I grew up where in a family where like, honestly, like family wasn't Mm. particularly valued. Mm -hmm. So this has been a huge change for me. And I find myself just wanting to regress home a lot and Mm -hmm. like protect my child and my family Mm -hmm. and my privacy, like so much more. But with that being said, you know, I don't know. I am figuring out that I just like, don't know when to stop. Like I'm always doing Mm -hmm. something around the house and that's like such a mother thing, you know, always taking care of my kid, my dog, my patients, my husband. Like, so I really was talking with my cousins uh, a few days ago about how I've just, I like felt numb through like Mm -hmm. everything. I have like no emotion because I'm just so automatic in everything. So I've been trying to like reinstitute very small things like writing Mm -hmm. in my journal, which I used to do every single day. I have not written consistently in my journal for two years. Mm -hmm. Trying to do that. I'm trying, I've taken Mm -hmm. a bath, you know, that didn't involve my son (laughs) since he was born. So I'm trying to do that again. I'm trying to take my dog for like long walks. Like essentially what it all comes down to is I'm like trying to find moments of presence you know, throughout mm-hmm. the day, you know, so mm-hmm. I don't have time for anything grand. So my yeah. moments are very simple, which I think you get just as much satisfaction from, yeah. you know, and then of course, yeah. therapy, which I've been yeah. in therapy on and off mm-hmm. since I was 15 years old, mm-hmm. it has saved mm-hmm. my life time and time mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. I'm so close to getting back into it again. You know, it's just taking the step and calling yeah. the therapist and getting yeah. on yeah. the I have a therapist here. Yeah. Like I've been yeah. But yeah. I haven't gone for like a year. Yeah. So it's time to get back into that again. Yeah. yeah. So I would say that. Why? What do you do? I like to dance. and. Uh, oh, do you? Uh, yeah. I, I took hip hop lessons back in high school and I grew up dancing and doing gymnastics. So oh my gosh. I like doing that here and there. Honestly, I feel like social media as 
grimy and dark it could be. I <laughs> I think the content creation is something that I truly, truly enjoy. Like making videos, doing these live streams. I mean, I started this live stream series last year because I was coming out of a COVID shift and we had 10 patients die and we bagged those 10 patients. And then after that shift, I was walking out of the hospital because I work night shift and there was a COVID is a hoax protest like a few blocks down my hospital. And oh I was my like, God. I was like, there's so much misinformation going on. Why don't we hear from the actual educated and trained people in different fields of healthcare, of nursing, of medicine, and physical therapy or dentistry? And so over the past year, I think it's been so busy, like doing this live stream series that I've been transcribing to a podcast now to make it easier for people to listen to. But it's been as tiring and you know scheduling and planning and studying the fields of the people that i'm interviewing it's been so fun to meet new people and to gain inspiration from them like there are people who should be in healthcare and you're obviously one <laughs> uh, of them in any so in any form you choose so yeah i think that I feel- that's incredible Thank you. And I feel so fortunate to have people like you and everyone else there with me in this journey. And again, thank you so much for being with me here today, spending your lunchtime oh, afternoon with me. It's been such a pleasure. I learned so much and I'm even more encouraged and motivated to work with our community now here on social media to really fight for the voices in healthcare who have we no time change. energy to speak for themselves. Better. Yes. Yes. There's, like it's it's yeah. gotta be better. Like it's I feel like it's there are more transitions in healthcare in the last like two years than there have been in my entire career, which has been about 12 years. So like, it's at least nice to see some sort of shift or movement. So I pray that it will change for all of us, for doctors, yeah. nurses, techs, yeah. you know, respiratory therapists, whatever, you know, if we just keep moving along. So yeah, Danielle, thank you so much. It's such thank an you. honor, such a pleasure. Thank and you. This will be the last time we will talk. We have I love it. many, many more things to talk about. Thank you so much. Have Thank a good you. day. I, Thank I you. Bye. We have now reached the end of the story. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Friends of France. I hope you had an enjoyable adventure learning about our expert guest, their work, and why they do the things that they do. Please check out the rest of the series available on all podcast platforms. Please also consider following the podcast on the platform that you prefer. Turn on the alerts for new episodes so you don't miss new stories. And give us a rating to support the show. You can find more updates on the podcast's official Instagram at Friends of France Pod or my personal Instagram at Chris Franz. That's without the I because there is no I in team. <laughs> I'm kidding. Someone already took the username. Have a great day or night, everybody.